name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hello, 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 and welcome to another Talking Bat interview. And this time I am really, really delighted to have Talking Bat with me today, Gareth Jones, Professor of Biological Sciences. Gareth, how are you doing today? Yes, I'm good. Thank you, Neil. Thanks very much for the opportunity, um, providing the opportunity for me to take part in uh, Talking Bat. No, no, no problem at all. I have been so excited about this. Uh, although I haven't uh, known you all of my bat life, I have certainly been aware of you all of my bat life and uh, you have contributed so much to the knowledge of uh, what many people uh, take for granted uh, regarding uh, stuff they do when it comes to how they interact with bats etc. And we're going to get more into some of the detail of that as we uh, get into the interview. So first of all, for Gareth, I just want to do a very brief introduction because surprisingly, okay, there might be some people out there that uh, don't know uh, who you are, uh, etc. So just by way of an introduction, um, Gareth is a professor of biological sciences at the University of Bristol. I think I'm right in saying, Gareth, you've been at the University of Bristol for some time now, yeah? Many, many years. Yes, I arrived in 1985, so 36 years. Yeah. <laughs> Never felt like moving on, no? <laughs> Obviously quite happy where you are. Yeah, um, it's a great place to work, actually. Great students, very, very um, good colleagues as well, and uh, lots of bats in the area, so. I'm very yeah. happy there. Yeah, yeah. No, if you're going to do, if you're going to study bats in the UK, uh, you certainly don't want to be up in the central belt of Scotland. Although, I believe you did spend some time at the University of Stirling, correct? Yeah. I did. So I actually did my PhD on uh, birds at the University of Stirling with um, someone, David Bryant, who was a superb um, supervisor there. Uh, David worked on the energetics of birds and um, in my last year, I think it was at Sterling, um, I bumped into John Haddo, yes, Carmen Placido, um, who was just setting up the Central Scotland Bat Group. Okay. I remember catching a long-eared bat in a misnet when I was um, working on swallows and just being fascinated by it. Wow, wow. So if that was John setting up Central Scotland Bat Group, any idea what year that would have been, roughly? That must have been, what, early 1990s or...? No, 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 it was before no. that. It was 1984, I believe. Wow, wow. Well, I was, I was many years before I got involved with Central Scotland Back Group. Um, wow, wow. And you're keen, well, your areas of uh, interest, and this probably doesn't justify all of your areas of interest, but... When I was looking at the University of Bristol uh, bio of you, these were the things that were put up there as your research interests. Uh, do you want to just 
talk through these briefly. Um, we're going to get in a little bit more detail into some of them, but just talk through briefly what your past and current research interests have been. Yeah. Sure. Um, so um, I did my PhD on sort of behavioral ecology of birds, really. Um, I was interested in how the sort of decisions that animals make about investing in themselves versus investing in offspring when food gets scarce, etc. So my background was in behavioral ecology. I then um, was offered a position at the University of Bristol, working with someone called Jeremy Rayner, who um, was interested in the aerodynamics of flight, which is something I knew very little about. So I came to Bristol as a postdoc working for Jeremy on um, aerodynamics. In those days, you know, health and safety rules were a little bit lax. We would um, uh, have these three noctual bats that I um, inherited from my predecessor. And I could fly them around lecture theatres, they would come back and land on me. And they were uh, great for doing um, investigations into aerodynamics. So we would fly these bats down the corridor um, at night time in the university when no one was around. We'd fill the corridor with um, soap bubbles filled with helium. And we would photograph the movements of these soap bubbles um, with multi-flash photography. Um, so we could visualize the air movements created by the bat's wings as they flew through um, the air bubbles. And um, this was back in 1985, I think we started doing these experiments. We got a nature paper from it. Um, front cover of, of, of Nature at the time, which was really exciting. And then the experiments came to an end, um, partly because um, one of the university staff, one of the admin team, uh, came in one day in uh, high heels, and we didn't tidy up the, uh, the, the soap bubble fluid. Oh, no. We could have done. And she uh, went flying down the corridor. <laughs> We didn't visualize her wake, but um, uh, that meant that, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to do those experiments anymore, which is a bit of a shame. Um, so that's that's where oh, I- Stop, stop, stop a minute, Gareth, stop a minute. First and foremost, was she all right? Did she didn't- She was fine, she was fine, yeah. It was just a little, little slip. No, no, uh, no serious injuries at all, really. Um, and in retrospect, it's one of these things um, that, uh, you know, I, I can look, back and on and have a, a bit of a smile on my face. She, she was absolutely fine, yeah. Good, good. Um, so then I wanted really, my background was in animal, animal behavior, ecology. And I wanted to get into that area in the bat world. And um, I applied for one of these Royal Society University Research Fellowships. And um, that got me going um, in terms of the behavioral ecology of bats. So maybe, you know, we can say something more about that later on, but nowadays, the things where I've focused most of my research on bats have been conservation biology. Um, I'm still, you know, bats are amazing animals. They've got these remarkable adaptations and it's these remarkable adaptations that made me even more passionate about conserving them. So um, we've done a lot of work on, um, you know, dealing with bats in historic buildings. That was quite a recent project. Um, some of the early work we did, radio tracking greater horseshoe bats, um, 
was used to provide guidance for the countryside stewardship scheme, as it was in those days, which provided um, mechanisms that farmers could implement to better conserve horseshoe bats. And that seems to have been very, very successful. Um, echolocation, I've moved a little way out of working in echolocation in recent years, but I'm still use, you know, echolocation call recording a lot for monitoring uh, bat activity. I've always been interested in these sort of aspects of social behavior, ecology, and, um, you know, the big area that's changed in biology in the last um, 15 or 20 years really has been molecular genetics. And um, one thing I've learned as being a biologist over these years is, you know, don't sit around doing the same thing year after year and get even more fine detailed in particular areas. Be prepared to diversify. And I've really got interested in molecular biology. In the last year, I was involved in a study um, where we've now a high quality genome, some of the best genomes available for any animal from bats, including our greater horseshoe bats. And um, I'm currently getting really interested in a field called epigenetics. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that um, down the line. Okay, well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll come, let's, let's please come back to those because uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear uh, the significance as you see it for these things as uh, you know, as time goes on and more and more discoveries are made and stuff. But before we uh, do too much about what you're up to now, I think this is a photograph of you, uh, what, a couple of years ago, maybe? <laughs> maybe a bit longer than that. Um, was this in Kenya? Was this Nairobi? Um, uh, one of your earlier tra travels, can't remember. But you're quite keen in your photography and stuff as well, I think. So this is quite a nice photograph and we're going to talk about your photography later on as well but what I'm really intrigued by is what were you like as a child a teenager um were you always into natural history in some shape or form did you fall into it by accident just give us a little bit of what it was like growing up and beginning to develop your interest in in nature yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that photo, I think it was in Banjul in the Gambia in the early 1990s. So, okay. um, when I had, uh, my hair wasn't grey. But um, the, so no, I, I was really into natural history as a child. I mean, um, I was an only child. Um, I grew up in a fairly working class family. So my father was a bricklayer. And my mother was a dim lady. And um, I was allowed to pre-range quite a lot. My father was magnificent. He would take me out um, to wildlife sites, leave me to go bird watching. And I had remarkable freedom, I think. And I really got into bird watching at a local reservoir with a, a close friend. And um, that sort of kicked off my interests. I think, you know, ever since, I remember going to actually a Genesis concert when Peter Gabriel was in Genesis. My okay. I didn't see um, Genesis with Gabriel. I, I the only time I saw Genesis was after Gabriel had left, but I yeah. loved Peter. I, 
Peter Gabriel in Genesis, The Lamb Lies Down Broadway, Selling England by the Pound, all those albums, some of my favourite albums. Tell us a bit about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this was actually The Lamb Lies Down in Broadway um, okay. concert uh, in, in Bristol, actually. And wow. um, I was in South Wales, and I remember my friend's parents driving us back, and the conversation came around to um, what, what you want to do when you leave school, etc. I knew when I was 14, I think it was around about that time, I wanted to be a research biologist. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I had my little uh, teenage um, diversions, I suppose, yeah. when I was in the sixth form, etc., and almost blew my chances. But um, I then went to university in London and um, really thought, right, I'm going to go for this and really put a lot of effort into uh, getting a good degree. And um, I knew I wanted to do a PhD immediately afterwards. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's always been a deep and long interest of mine. And, you know, you go through these things about you want to see different sorts of animals. You really appreciate biodiversity. But I wanted to delve a little bit deeper. I wanted to um, work out why did animals evolve in this particular way? What are the adaptations that these animals are showing? How can we do careful experiments, field experiments, to tease out the effects of particular things on animal behavior, et cetera? So um, that's, that's the sort of broad brush of how I got into this area, I guess. So let's go back to when you started uh, birding. Was that interest sparked by your, your parents? Did I miss that? Or was that something you just took upon yourself to do? Um, um, yeah. yeah, it was self-generated, really. I think my parents had weren't really especially interested in, in natural history, but encouraged me to be interested and gave me that freedom to really enjoy it. And... Um, you know, I'm very, very grateful for for having that um, ability, really, to um, get me going in a very, very independent way. Yeah. Well, that's, I just wanted to also take you back because totally, I mean, obviously, I didn't know you were going to mention Genesis and Peter Gabriel. Okay, and that's just a total, <laughs> uh, you know, but that must have been some concert. Is that the concert? Uh, when they pretty much did the whole set around that album and he did a lot of dressing up and all the rest yeah, of it yeah, and the yeah, characters. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. That's right. There was a huge sort of slideshow in the background. And I'm always amazed, actually, that these guys are, you know, in their early 20s and getting up on the stage and doing doing this amazing concert. Yeah. I mean, my musical tastes have changed a lot since then, but I, yeah. still, um, I still think that's one of the best concerts I've, I've yeah. went to. It's, it's amazing. Listen... You know, you younger people that probably never heard of Genesis or Peter Gabriel, The Lamb Lies Down Broadway, um, an amazing album, an amazing, amazing album. And it's just saying, Gareth, these guys to come up with the stuff they were coming up with at that stage, it's just amazing, amazing stuff. But anyway, we've gone off on a, a tangent, as I said to you before we started the interview, that this would happen. And uh, what can I say? You know, uh, music, birds, bats, uh, it's all... This is all this is all very exciting for me because this is all stuff that, that I'm that I'm into. Tell me a little bit about this picture here. Uh this looks a kind of almost like a before and after shot. Uh, <laughs> what's what's happening here? Yeah. yeah, it's before I had the Botox treatment 
Um, no. Uh, um, so this this is this was just a bit of fun a few years ago, and uh, soon after I arrived in Bristol, you know, talking in the mid nineteen eighties, I did something for Tomorrow's World, a science program on BBC One, and I found a year or so ago some uh, DVDs of that program. So we put them up on the TV screen at home, and I just sat in front of one of the images of my former self. Um, and, see, uh, and that's me a couple of years ago in the foreground, me probably 30 years younger um, in the background. And I'm always amazed at these photographs and the way we humans age. And um, if I picked up a greater horseshoe bat, that was say um, four years old, and then the same bat, I think we've got one at the moment that's about 24 years old in Roger Ransom's colony. Um, you would hardly be able to tell the difference. And it's obviously a very different uh, aging process than we see in ourselves. That's amazing. Tomorrow's World, yeah? That must have been a bit of a buzz because if you go, if you go back to when Tomorrow's World was on the BBC, yeah, most people, in fact, I don't think cable television existed in the UK back then. There probably was only three channels on but tomorrow's world was prime time bbc television uh and there was only even two or three stations uh, available for people to watch tell us a little bit about what the product felt doing something like that um yeah, it's all it's all a bit of a haze at the moment, actually. So I can't remember. I can't even remember what the program was about, even. But um, you know, I've had the pleasure of working in a number of TV productions, radio productions over the years, and the two, I guess, that really stand out in my memory are working on the life of mammals. So. Um, yeah. The, the Attenborough series. So we, we actually did, gave a lot of advice for that series and um, used to liaise with the uh, producer and director. So there's some fantastic footage in uh, the BATS programme on the life of mammals. Yeah. Yeah. Se- the one sequence I can really remember was um, a naturalist bat plucking a spider yeah. on a spider's web. Yeah. And um, I suggested they tried to film this because it's something I thought would be going on. I thought something like spider in a web, it's going to be quite a, a prominent target for an echolocating bat. Yeah. Um, and you find spiders in the droppings of naturalist bats. Yes. So let's see if it can be filmed. So actually, although that sequence looks very, very natural, it and also the moth capture sequences, the Dorbenton's bat sequences trawling, yeah. All filmed in a garage in Clifton in Bristol. So um yeah, that 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 was but they did a superb job on that and they, they were a real pleasure to work with actually. So um that sticks out in my mind. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. Find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace. Go to batability.co.uk. Thank you.
But I want to talk about that Natura's bat sequence. And uh, it's a while since I've seen that. But the way that I remember watching that sequence, and I hope I've got this right, but did you have any way prior to them filming what they actually ended up filming of anticipating that the bat would come up to the web, know the spider was on the wrong side, and then come back around and get the spider from the right side of the web. I think that's what happened. Is that right? Right. Hang on. So, so, so that's the long-eared bat. Sequence. Is that the long-eared? No, okay. um, the long-eared right. bat. Well, that was exciting as well because yeah. that actually showed convincingly that the, the long-eared bat was listening for the prey-generated uh, sounds um, in, in, in that sequence. But yes, in that sequence, the long-eared bat initially started approaching the leaf from the wrong side and then de made a detour around to the um, other side to, to, to pick off the, um, the, the moth that was, was placed there. That's amazing. And and that's a bat sequence was, was remarkable. I mean, remember the bat flying backwards even, yeah. taking the spider and then just moving away backwards. That was and I seem to remember the web was almost left mm. totally intact, I think. Yeah. yeah. And of course, these bats, they're doing this in complete darkness yeah it's, it's yeah really, yeah in the wild they are in the yes. garage they probably weren't but um <laughs> that's fair. Uh, yes in, to think of, of them doing this in dark conditions is is remarkable that's amazing stuff right let's uh, let's let's move on a little bit right so we've talked quite a bit about uh, some of the stuff already but you've got uh look i'll be honest i i I wouldn't even know how to begin to kink them up anyway, but I think it's around about 300 research publications outputs uh, produced uh, since starting off a University of London degree in ecology. As you said, you then did your PhD on the behavioural ecology of birds. And as we already discussed, you commenced at Bristol University in 1985. A couple of other things I want to add to this. Uh, you mentioned, I think, already the research fellowship, um, you know, that uh, that you uh, got involved with uh, from combine, that allowed you to combine your interests in, in these things. Um, this kind of made me smile a little bit. Okay, the IG Nobel Prize in Biology awarded in Harvard for science that first makes people laugh and then it makes them think. How, how did you feel about that? <laughs> uh, right, so the Ig Nobel Prize, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was actually one of the best pieces of comedy I've ever seen. So um, this is a ceremony that's held at, um, annually in the, um, the Sanders Theatre at um, Harvard University. We then had to go around to MIT and give presentations there being introduced by an opera singer for each of the little presentations. And it attracts, um, you know, Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts has some of the brightest minds in the world. You've got uh, Harvard, you've got MIT, you've got some amazing hospitals, etc. And these ceremonies are attended um, by lots of people from these institutions and also by a number of um, real Nobel Prize winners. Okay, so um, okay. it's 
in, in the past, the Ig Nobel Prize had a bad reputation and people were thinking, oh, why on earth are people doing this? And it's sort of changed its emphasis. It's now, as it says here, mainly about science that first makes people laugh and then makes them think. So the award was for a paper in a journal called PLOS One. Okay. Um, and I'm trying to remember, it's something about fellatio extends copulation time in um, these, 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 these fruit bats. Okay. It's actually the second most highly viewed uh, paper in any of the PLOS journals. It's not the second most highly cited, but okay. um, uh, it's quite interesting that people were really interested in it. And it sparked all sorts of spin-off um, events. So even um, resulted in a high course, uh, sorry, a high court case in Ireland where an academic at a university, they left the paper on a, a female colleague's desk and got accused of sexual harassment. But actually there were all sorts of other things going on. And that was just used as a, a little um, a, a little weapon, I think, in the battle between um, a rivalry between between colleagues. Um, and yeah, it, you know, I think it did make people think, partly because I received a lot of emails afterwards from some quite eminent biologists. So people like Franz de Vaux, who works on uh, chimpanzee personalities, etc. And um, you know, we got thinking about um, this, which types of animals can sense pleasure, etc., and thinking outside of our own uh, our own little heads. So, um, yeah, you know, and the event was just incredible. I remember giving the Nobel Prize winners um, some bat puppets that my wife made with uh, penises and tongues on them, so they could work out how this uh, this this, this uh, behavior happened. And um, I think my first words when I received the award, um, this is on YouTube somewhere, um, yeah. was thanks very much for this award. I'm blown away. So, um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's it's really important to have a sense of humor in uh, in university work. And um, uh, I've always tried to keep that sense of humor to to keep me going, really, um, yeah. Well, look, especially, well, you're in a very uh, high pressure type environment, uh, but not only that, when I'll, so much of your uh, time when it comes to field related activities has been involving bat related work, perhaps. And, you know, I'm quite sure like the rest of us, you'll have heard many summers or equivalent experiences overseas where it's long dark hours and not a lot of sleep sometimes yeah um so you've got to have a sense of humor and um, because you would just because sometimes that's all you've got <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. yeah um wow okay something a little bit more notable uh gerrit miller award at the North American Symposium on Bat Research in recognition of outstanding service and contribution to the field of Coropterin biology. Uh, that's a pretty special award. Um, yeah, they only give one of these out per annum, I think. Uh, not yeah. even every year, sometimes years right. are skipped as well. Yeah. 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 Um, now, I want to I talk, and 
this was this was for a lot of things because by the time we get to 2011, uh, you've been involved in quite a lot of research and uh, stuff. And I suppose this was one of these uh, points in time where perhaps you yourself maybe took a little bit of stock and thought, you know, you, you must have, it must have been pretty, uh, try to think of the word. How, how did you feel knowing you were going to get this? You know, what, what, what was it like? Yeah. Um, so I knew in advance that um, I was going to get it. And um, I went to um, Toronto. I took my um, elder daughter with me. Actually, it was her first big overseas um, trip to Toronto. And she would go off to Niagara Falls and places by herself. And um, th 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 there's a slight... Um, it's slightly tainted with sadness, this award, partly because um, I was due to be given the award by Tom Coons. And two days prior to the award ceremony, Tom had his car accident. Um, and, you know, that left him pretty um, incapacitated largely for the rest of his life until he, he died from, from COVID um, last, last year, I believe. Um, so that that that's always going through my head when I think of this award because Tom was a great colleague. I worked with him quite a lot as well, and um, Brock Fenton stood in and uh, gave me the award and did a great job of it as as usual. And um, yeah, I mean it was a it was a, a really nice celebration and several people I've worked with as PhD students, so Steve Roster. Um, Tigger Kingston, etc., were, were, were present um, in Toronto as well, and um, we had a we had a good celebration nonetheless. And I'm very um, honoured to have been given this award. Yeah. Now, one of the things that had been happening uh, that would be part and parcel of this, but not the complete picture, but something that is very relevant for us here in the British Isles, and I think I. I think from memory when I was doing the research, I think I actually lifted this off of part of the script that accompanies the website where you getting that award uh, is still present. And it, it mentions many things, but uh, this was the bit that I really focused on. Key achievements, including leading research on the discovery of a new abundant species of European bat, the first mammal species not the first bat species, the first mammal species to be described from Britain in recent years. And all of this was happening in the 1990s. And all of this relates to what we used to call Pipistrellus pipistrellus, which we thought were all of our bats in our most common single species of bat in the UK. But over a period of time, I believe initially sparked by echolocation uh, uh, signatures, the pulses in echolocation. There was this thing that was going on. You know, why do we have one species of bat in the British Isles, for example, that seems to have two quite separate echolocation frequencies of maximum energy, so to speak? And I think that was kind of the backdrop to then quite a lot of significant research, a good percentage of which you were involved with, which then led us to Pipistrellus pygmius. Um, do you want to talk 
you know, please talk a bit about all of this because there are many people today, especially younger people, that wouldn't appreciate that 30 years ago, for example, when I first started getting into bats, we only had one species of pipistrel. Well, we only thought we had one species of pipistrel in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, the story hasn't actually been written down anywhere. Um, I've just written a chapter for the Handbook of European Mammals. It tries to put everything um, in one place, but I'll take you through the story as much as I can remember it. If you hear any snoring noises, by the way, it's my dog who's okay. uh, <laughs> asleep on, on a beanbag behind me. Um, so um, I hope I, I hope uh, I hope I can keep the rest of you um, awake. So yeah, in the early 1990s, um, you know, we were doing lots of acoustic surveys around the place, and we noticed this these two types of echolocation calls in 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 pipistrelle bats, and um, <clears throat> we weren't the only people to notice this. People in Europe knew about it as well. Their interpretation was, yeah, these are all pipistrels, pipistrels, and they're just changing um, their echolocation calls when they fly in different habitats. So um, it all started off, I think, with a third year project I was supervising at Bristol, and um, <clears throat> we were able to show that actually the distribution of these calls is very bimodal. <clears throat> there are hardly any intermediates. And <clears throat> I thought, well, this doesn't really fit in with a habitat use picture. And we also recorded a few roosts and all the bats that came out of every roost were the same <clears throat> echolocating time. Then <clears throat> I think it was around about 1992, <clears throat> an intern from Cambridge came into my lab. <clears throat> Someone called Sophie Van Paris and Sophie is now, um, you know, a leading <clears throat> marine biologist, I believe. <clears throat> And we did a summer project, we went around a load of roost sites, we caught bats, we showed that every roost only contains the one echolocating type, and we let the bats go in fixed habitat types. So we could control, in effect, for the effects of um, the habitat. We still saw this, this divergence in echolocation uh, call type. So this led us to propose that there were um, cryptic species, species that look very, very similar to our eyes, but differ in other ways, um, present. And this then um, led to um, Kate Barlow coming into my lab. Um, and Kate was um, a remarkable um, PhD student who did her PhD thesis on um, these pipistrelle bats. And she showed, <coughs> and, uh, and as a uh, you know, with your expert knowledge of social calls, Neil, that the, the, these bats tend to use <coughs> different uh, types of social calls. The number of components in social calls typically differs. The frequency is slightly different. The shape of the calls is slightly different. And Kate did some really nice playback experiments um, <coughs> showing that only <coughs> the one type of bat responds to its own type of social call. <coughs> So this was quite interesting. These, these social calls are the ones that, you know, sometimes you hear pipistrels squeaking and <clears throat> the, the, these calls, many younger people can hear them quite clearly. I can't um, anymore. <clears throat> but um, Kate always used to call them anti-social calls because they're used okay. in patch defense. They make other bats leave the area. 
Yeah. They, they seem to be um, <clears throat> signals only to bats of the same um, echolocating type. Other people were involved. So <clears throat> Kirsty Park, who was in the lab at the time, did some work with John Altrincham in Leeds, looking at <clears throat> composition of mating groups in, in bat boxes. And again, <clears throat> 55 kilohertz males were associating with 55 kilohertz females and 45 kilohertz males, 45 kilohertz females, suggesting that some sort of reproductive isolation was going on. <clears throat> Kate also looked at skull morphology, roost size. Um, we started doing work on the habitat selection. So Ian Davidson Watts did a really nice thesis and also working in Aberdeen at the same time, showing that <clears throat> the, the 55 kilohertz bats were very much more associated with water habitats. The 45 kilohertz bats are more generalist in their behavior as well. And uh, we linked up with um, Elizabeth Barrett and colleagues at the Zoological Society of London and started doing some genetics work. And by modern standards, the genetics were, was fairly simple, really. So we were looking at a small segment of um, mitochondrial, I think it was cytochrome B gene in those days, and we found that the two echolocating types were genetically very, very different and may have separated from a common ancestor as long as five million years ago. Um, so we had multiple lines of evidence. We had um, the echolocation calls, we had um, the social calls, we had mating groups, we had habitat use, we had dietary information. And all of this fitted together. We also did experiments on scent choice, etc., as well, and found that each of these types of bats could recognize its own type from scent. Um, so it's a very, very integrated approach to, you know, proposing that these were indeed um, separate species. And what's remarkable, I guess, is um, that. <clears throat> The number of bat species, when we did this work, there were probably about 800 bat species described. Now we've got over 1400, <clears throat> largely through the application of these molecular methods, I guess, in terms of working out that, <clears throat> you know, there are more bat species out there than we initially thought. And if you think about it, it makes sense. We're visual animals. We're used to seeing things like different bird species with different colors. Bats are not so much visual animals, they rely more on sound. So having differences in echolocation calls, having differences in, 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 in their genetics structure, etc., all fits in. And it's remarkable how much new biodiversity has been um, unraveled um, in recent years. That must have been, I don't know if exciting would be a word that you would use, but that period when, well, I mean, I, I, from an outsider, yeah, and someone that was already in the bat world at that time, but I obviously didn't know that much. I was very much a beginner. But I just remember my, back, my background was birding. I mean, like yourself, being a birder, well, I've been a birder since the age of eight, you know. Um, I didn't get into bats until I was into my late 20s, early 30s. But in a birding context, it's a bit like having, you know, robins, yeah, 
and people are accustomed to seeing robins and they accept there's only one species of robin, but all of the time actually know there was there's actually two completely different species you know, that are actually quite far apart from each other, uh, albeit in the same family. Uh, that must have been it possibly not so much exciting because it was happening over a period of a number of years, but it must have been quite exhilarating to be part of that, to be involved in that, yeah? Yeah, it was um, exciting. And, you, you know, I remember some scientists saying that um, when you get these quite radical new ideas, uh, people start off saying, oh, we don't believe this, it can't be correct. Gradually, people accept um, the idea. And then they say, oh, yeah, of course, we've known this all along. Um, and that sort of thing happened to some extent with these these paper strolls, I guess. But the actual naming process was quite drawn out as well. So okay. yeah. we had to go through the um, International Union on the Zoological Nomenclature in yeah. naming. And that's very much more, it's much more like, you know, a legal process than a biological one. And nomenclature is there to promote stability um, and clarity in naming of animals. So you have to, the, the pipistrels have been given this long list of synonyms, same names that subsequently been thrown out. You still have to go through this list of synonyms yeah. and find the next available name to apply. And there was a big debate whether this should be called Pipistrelus mediterraneus, which is um, a subspecies that was described in Spain. And most of the continental Europeans wanted to use that name um, and, you know, we now know that Pipistrelus, Pipistrelus mediterraneus is indeed um, this 55 kilohertz echolocating type. But the next available name on the list, the one that would give us the greatest stability in naming the species was Pipistrelus pygmaeus. And between Pipistrelus pipistrellus and Pipistrelus, Pipistrelus mediterraneus, there was a whole list of other synonyms. So people could come in and say, oh, we disagree with Pipistrellus mediterraneus, you should use this name. Pygmaeus was a strange one, so um, we weren't able to get DNA from the type specimen at the Natural History Museum. And um, it's actually a name given to a, a juvenile, an infant bat that uh, the Reverend Leach found in Dartmoor uh, back in the 1800s. Okay. Um, but in terms of promoting stability, um, and clarity, I think, you know, that name can stay. And I received a lot of um, assistance from Tony Hudson at the time, actually, in, in going about this, uh, trying to find the most suitable name to apply to the species. So that's how Pipistrelus pygmaeus came around. And my musical tastes changed. So I got quite into opera, actually. Okay. I love a good Mozart opera, a good Verdi opera. Okay. And uh, because of the higher pitched sound made by uh, Pipistrellus pygmaeus. I thought the vernacular name of soprano Pipistrella might be yeah. quite appropriate. Yeah. So, so this whole thing then about uh, the, the pygmy part of pygmaeus and soprano Pipistrellus on average being slightly smaller than common Pipistrellus, that, that's just a coincidence that it wasn't chosen for, for that reason. Uh, yeah. No. No, it's um, it's all there because it's the next name on the list, really. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. You know, 
what, what, what you've just been talking about there, um, uh, I, knew, I knew bits of what you were talking about there, but I've never, I've, I've never heard it from, obviously from your perspective before, and there are things you've added uh, to what was happening that I had absolutely no idea about. And I think that would be absolutely fascinating for people to, uh, to hear. Uh, your memories yeah. and your perceptions of of all that yeah yeah wow. thanks i mean it's it's one of these things that some of those thoughts were just coming into my head then yeah um as we were talking about them actually yeah yeah so uh let's go back let's go back to present day now if people want to find out more about uh, well this will also give i suppose a historical perspective of publications and people that have worked in your lab in the past and all this kind of stuff, but it'll also give them perhaps a feel for some of the things that you're involved with now. So this is the Gareth Jones lab. I want to tell people just a little bit about uh, what you're doing now. Maybe come back to this molecular uh, biology thing that you were talking about earlier that you thought might be useful to expand upon, stuff like that, yeah? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, people, if I've been involved in some interesting things during my time as a scientist, I think perhaps the Pipistrelle story is the one that most people think about. But for me, my most um, treasured contribution, I guess, is actually training up, um, you know, new bat researchers. And I think I've now had 50 PhD students come through the lab and um, a number of uh, master's students as well. And this uh, website was set up by a current PhD student, Luke Romain, and um, describes a little bit about the history of what we've been doing, but also what we're doing at the moment. So my research again has diversified. So <clears throat> I've got projects going on at the moment on crocodile genetics on um, attraction of pest insects to different types of light um, <clears throat> and crayfish environmental DNA etc as well as a, several bat projects. <clears throat> the bat projects that are going on at the moment <clears throat> we've got one on uh, Rodriguez fruit bats genetics and how <clears throat> Genetic diversity has changed in captive populations um, <clears throat> compared with wild populations. Um, <clears throat> and also the calls, the, uh, the calls emitted by Rodriguez fruit bats. But I've also got a student working on the effects of solar, solar farms on bats. And that sort of follows on from an interest in, you know, wind turbine effects on bats. <clears throat> I served on the Bats and Wind Energy Cooperative for for some years, based in the US. Um, and um, the, the, the other work that's ongoing um, largely concerns <coughs> collaborations with Roger Ransom. So Roger has been studying greater horseshoe bats at Woodchester Mansion for over 60 years. And I've been working with him um, probably for 30 years now. <coughs> Since 1993, we've genetic information from every bat born in the colony and several from surrounding hibernation sites as well. And uh, Luke Romain is currently working on um, bringing our pedigree up to date. So we know 
we know who the mothers are of the pups because we tend to catch pairs of bats in the summer. Some of them we can't pair up and we have to use genetics to work out who the mother is. But we can also use genetics to work out <clears throat> paternity as well. So now we've got these, these genetic data covering our 28 years, I believe. <clears throat> so, um, you know, that gives us a really a real understanding into the family trees in this, um, this bat roost. And in the last five years or so, I've been collaborating a lot with um, Emma Teeling in University College Dublin, doing work on aging. And as I joked with you earlier, you know, when I was a young man, I used to work on sex. As I'm getting older, I'm getting more interested in why animals age and yeah. why some animals age faster than others. And we're approaching this from a number of lines. We're looking at things called telomeres, which are little, almost like caps at the end of chromosomes that tend to get shorter and erode um, as animals get older. Interestingly, in some bat species, that telomere shortening doesn't happen. In myotis species that Emma has been studying, it does happen in greater horseshoe bats, but at a relatively slow rate. And we're finding that telomeres are actually much more dynamic than people uh, thought. They actually do elongate at certain times um, of, of their lives. So we have a PhD student, Megan Power, um, based at University College Dublin, who's been working on the telomeres. And more recently, we've been working on something called epigenetics. So epigenetics involves a process called DNA methylation. So last year we had this fantastic paper from cover of nature again with six bat genomes in it, including the greater horseshoe bat genome. So we've got virtually all of the protein coding genes in the greater horseshoe annotated now. It's one of the best quality genomes of a mammal around. Um, <clears throat> but it's not just the genes that are important, it's what happens to genes during um, an animal's lifetime. And some of these genes get methylated, and this affects the what we call gene expression. So how much protein is actually produced um, can be affected by changes in DNA methylation. <clears throat> and we've developed this thing called an epigenetic clock in collaboration with um, Jerry Wilkinson at Maryland and Steve Horvath, who's an amazing biologist at UCLA in California and we can we get this really close correlation between DNA methylation levels and age in um, in any bats actually but it's especially clear in greater horseshoe bats. Um, <clears throat> we can use these DNA methylation patterns to understand which genes are becoming methylated or in particular ways in bats and we found some interesting patterns in, for instance, genes associated with cancer risk that undergo specific methylation patterns in bats, not in other mammals. Um, and we're now at the stage where this chip that Steve Horvath developed at UCLA can be applied to any mammal and can predict the age of any mammal very, very accurately from these patterns of DNA methylation. So. Um, you know, this will allow um, some amazing advances, I think, in, in biology. And 
What I've become interested in now is why do some bats <coughs> age more rapidly than others? So okay. um, I remember <coughs> many years ago, um, a colleague <coughs> from the Netherlands who's now passed away, who was a heavy smoker, um, and <coughs> he turned up to give a presentation in the department and he was stood alongside Roger Ransom and both these guys were the same age. And the guy from the Netherlands just looked so much older than Roger, whose <clears throat> DNA methylation must be remarkable, actually. <clears throat> so why is it that some of these bats age faster than others? And this is what we're trying to look at at the moment, <clears throat> if we can get funding to do it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we're interested, especially in things like reproductive costs. So Roger has already shown that bats that breed earlier at two years female bats tend to have lower survival than bats that start breeding at three years. So there's okay. the cost of reproduction. How is that manifested in this DNA methylation, this what we call age epigenetic age acceleration? Okay. How does bad weather drive um, this aging process as well? If we get years where the weather is really bad, does that mean that the DNA methylation process speeds up this um, epigenetic aging as well. So that's one of the areas that really excites me at the moment, actually. And we're also combining these two biomarkers of aging, the telomeres, which me measure the turnover of cells, the mitosis, if you like, together with DNA methylation, which gives you a different measure of aging, but we still don't fully understand what it's telling us but it's a fantastic biomarker of aging, probably the best one out there. Um, and, you know, do we get similar patterns in telomere shortening to what we see in DNA methylation? So this is one of the areas that's really exciting me um, nowadays. So I'm, I'm thinking about all of that and I'm trying to, I'm trying to, well, obviously this won't do it justice, but I'm trying to dumb this down to uh, what this could mean at a practical level, for example, uh, for just normal bat workers or consultants, etc., does this mean, for example, from bat droppings, um, it may be possible or it is possible for certain species to say not only the bat dropping belongs to a certain species, but we might be able to say it's a female and it was 10 years old, for argument's sake. Is that possible or are we not quite there yet or um i mean that's a really good question i don't know the answer it all depends on how much good quality dna you can get from the droppings right um and i i'm not sure we, we tend to use wing tissue biopsies to okay. get the yeah. dna yeah but in theory um it might well be possible to um reliably age bats from DNA and droppings, yeah, it might be possible. These um, these chips at the moment, they're coming down in, in, in price all the time. I think yeah. at the moment it costs us somewhere around about 130 pounds a sample to okay. analyze the data. But I think this method is gonna be, you know, <clears throat> mammal biologists throughout the world are gonna want to use it yeah. and um, the costs will come down as well. But I. I don't see why that's not possible. That's a yeah. really good yeah. question. Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to think how uh, 
you know, the, the whole thing about bats is obviously, you know, considerably better than I do. It's, you know, you're dealing with something that you can't see, that you can't hear because you need equipment in order to turn what you can't hear into something you can't, uh, you can't normally hear. You can't see it, you can't hear it. And there are so many decisions made when it comes to development, for example, based on pretty slim layers of information in certain respects. And anything, I suppose, that enables a better level of decision, or a better level of information, which then leads to better decisions, especially when it means that animals themselves do not need to be directly disturbed or interfered with. You know, that's, that's got to be beneficial. Uh, uh, you know, what, what's your perspective on that um, generally? Yeah, I think, I think you know, in terms of... There, there is re real potential in using genetics, both for individual identification of animals and also for aging animals. And that, in theory, might be possible to do um, non-invasively. You can certainly identify individuals from um, DNA and back, back droppings reasonable confidence um, and you know I guess it's a question of cost to some extent so doing these things at present is costly um, but the, the costs are likely to come down and so yeah I think detailed analysis of DNA and droppings you can potentially get individual identification you can get age information you can get dietary information there's great potential there really Amazing stuff, amazing stuff. I'm so glad we had the opportunity to, 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 to talk about that. Let's let's move on a little bit. Uh, I know you get involved a lot with uh, overseas um, work, uh, trying to develop interest, capacity building, that kind of stuff, I think would maybe be how it would be described. And th this is a project, uh, an organisation that you're involved with. But I know you also get involved. I mean, Bats Without Borders, everyone is predominantly focusing on, on the African uh, side of things. But I think, Gareth, you also get involved in India, for example, as well, in different ways. Do you want to talk a little bit about BWB, but also the other stuff you're doing overseas that are that's maybe of a similar complexion to the sort of things that Bats Without Borders try to do? Yeah, I mean, Bats Without Borders is a very, very um, important organisation, especially in promoting um, bat research in areas um, where relatively little work has been done previously, especially by um, people who live in those um, areas. And Bats Without Borders was set up by <clears throat> Rachel um, Bahannon Cooper, who was a, an undergraduate at Bristol, did a field course uh, with me on bats many, many years ago, and uh, ended up doing a PhD with Kirsty um, at Stirling, has now has, has set up this, uh, this tremendous organization to build capacity in bat research um, in Africa. Um, yeah, and as you say, you know, I suppose the two regions where um, I've been most involved with overseas work have been China um, and India. So the Chinese work initially started off with a strong conservation emphasis, but moved more to 
genetics and um, science that was likely to result in important papers. Um, but the India stuff, um, my last overseas trip actually before COVID was uh, to India in January 2020. And we've taught two workshops there now on techniques for ecological study of bats. And we're trying to build capacity there as well. And I think there are a lot, again, there's, there's hope here because some of the technology that's now available to people in countries that don't have the resources necessarily to invest in conservation is getting uh, easier to use and lowering costs. So I'm thinking especially things like acoustic detectors, things like these audio moth detectors that can now be obtained, put out in large numbers at relatively low cost. And with a bit of training, people can go out and identify bats from echolocation calls work out where they're feeding, um, which areas need to be protected, etc. Um, so again, these are quite exciting possibilities, I think, for the future. Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. And um, we had, uh, coincidentally, we had Rachel from Bats Without Borders doing one of these interviews um, probably a couple of months ago now. So if anybody's watching this, uh, also go back and check out uh, the Bats Without Borders yeah. talking about interview that we did. But uh, no, fascinating stuff. I suppose like everybody else, you're probably itching to be able to start traveling properly again, are you? Uh, is that um, on the cards when you're allowed to? Yeah, yeah a little bit. Um, I'd really like to get to the next International Bat Research Meeting in Austin, Texas um, next year. But, um, you know, lockdown has been interested. It, interesting. It's really made me appreciate more what's on my doorstep, actually. And yeah. One thing I have noticed in the last year is there seem to be a lot more young people out there looking at nature. And that's, that's really great to see. Um, and being in Bristol, you know, we're spoiled really with all the specialities um, in the Avon Gorge, etc., within walking distance really of, of where I live. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not race, racing to go traveling again, okay. surprisingly. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, from my perspective, and I think a lot of people feel this, uh, Look, I mean, the week before Boris put us into lockdown, uh, goodness, what, last year, I, you know, I, it was a particularly crazy week for me, but it wasn't an unusual week, but it was excessive. I, I delivered five training courses in seven days uh, in different parts of the British Isles. And the Friday, the Friday we went into lockdown, or when Boris said we were going to go into lockdown, I think it was as of midnight that night. I was actually in York that day doing a training course. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't allowed to do anything or go anywhere. And I think for a lot of people, uh, certainly myself, as the weeks and months went beyond that point, my mind kept casting back to what I was doing immediately prior to it. And I started questioning what are you doing why are you doing why are you doing it you know what is your carbon footprint etc etc um in a, in a bigger way in a similar way is that 
partly where you come from as well or for different yeah, reasons perhaps yeah, yeah. I, th I think there will be some positives that come out of this um pandemic actually and in terms of university work um i think we've saved thousands of pounds in external examiner fees for phds yeah. um and you know the, there's no car, hardly any carbon footprint associated with that um yeah as well and now we can bring in examiners from all over the world to examine yeah. so that that's actually been um positive i think um we put huge efforts in in the last year and a half in making all our teaching online and um you know there are huge advantages with face-to-face -face teaching you can't beat it I actually taught a field course the only one i think at the university that was residential about two weeks ago it involved a lot of covid prevention management and taking people for pcr tests and um taking them to self-isolate because their friends had tested positive but you can't beat getting these students out into the field in a relaxed manner where you've got bat roosts close by you don't have to ferry people around in coaches all the time as well and um that that worked surprisingly well actually yeah. and it was close to bristol so uh, again again i think my perspective on travel um has changed quite a lot as a consequence of um covid no, totally, I can totally relate to that. Let's talk about you nut at work. And um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, Gareth, okay, that when I invited you to do this talk, yeah, uh, there was obviously quite a lot of stuff that I thought that I knew about you, yeah. But in between the moment when uh, you accepted you were going to do this, which was a couple of months ago now, I think, and now, and me doing some research, um, you know, I found out some quite interesting uh, things things about you. And it's not all work. I mean, you're you've got a you've got a, a dog. I think um, is this is this your dog? Yeah. Is this the one that's currently snoring in the corner? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's that's the dog that was snoring. Uh, being a lot more lively. That's Flory, the spring yeah. spaniel, who appears with me in my teaching videos from time to time. Yeah. I think she's gone out now, actually. I think uh, my wife's just got back and rescued her from the <laughs> room. Okay, that's lovely. And you're really heavily into your photography. Yeah, I mean, when I see some of these pictures that uh, I've stumbled across in recent weeks and stuff, I, I mean, I've, I've got to say, right, and please don't be upset by this, but I thought, he, you know, he didn't take that picture, <laughs> but but you did, yeah. Uh, this is a peregrine falcon. At the bottom <laughs> here. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you do when you're not at work? You know, so the photography, the birding, maybe some other things that I don't know about. Uh, okay. But, yeah. Sure. So, um, yeah, you know, my my work nowadays involves being sat in front of a computer for most of the day not getting exercise and um the way i recharge my batteries really is to get out into nature and i i'm a very keen wildlife photographer so um 
again, some of these new technologies are coming in really useful. So I've just got one of these cameras with this animal eye autofocus, hence the reason why that peregrine falcon is so sharp, I think. It just follows the eyes of the animals and keeps them um, in, 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 in focus. So uh, wildlife photography, one thing I'm doing at the moment is I'm recharging my interest in botany, actually. I'm trying to get to know plants, appreciating the ones that we have, the rarities we have in the Avon Gorge, for instance. And um, I'm very, very fortunate. I have a little house in Cornwall. In fact, in the first lockdown, I spent three months in um, Cornwall and it was so quiet, amazing place to, uh, to be at that time. So um, I split my time, I'm most of the time I'm in Bristol. I try to get to Cornwall as much as I can as well. Um, and um, yeah, wildlife photography, I'm, I'm very, very keen on. What else do I do? Well, before lockdown, um, when we could do things, um, I took up swing dancing. So my wife and I both do a bit okay. of swing dancing. We got married um, uh, a couple of years ago and uh, had a swing band and uh, did some swing dancing there at the time. That's good fun. Um, I sang in a choir um, for, you know, a sort of pop music choir um, before lockdown as well. My singing voice is awful. Uh, so I'm in the basses and I just sort of do the the sort of boom, 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 rhythm okay. bit for that okay. as well. Yeah. So you're, not and, Peter, you're not Peter um, Gabriel then, no. Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, I, you know, those sorts of things take up, um, took up quite a lot of time. Um, I'm also, I love cooking, so um, I, I do quite a lot of cooking. Um, I love Ottolenghi's recipes. So okay. um, oh, 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 vegan, oh, actually. So yeah. um Middle Eastern type food. Okay. Uh, okay. I really enjoy cooking. And um, um I do like my red wine as well. So uh, it's yeah, okay. Those are the sorts of things that uh, keep me happy and socializing. I like enjoy socializing in 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 batches, yeah. That, that, that's fascinating. I'm going to take you back to the birds. Would you describe yourself as a bit of a twitcher or a birder or an ornithologist? How would you describe um, yourself in that respect? Yeah. Well, if, if a rare bird turns up in the vicinity, I'll go and see it. But, um, you know, I'm not going to go charging up to Yorkshire to see the black-browed albatross that's there at the moment. Um, I don't think that's good. For a number of reasons, I don't think it's good for the environment. I don't think it's good. It's almost it can almost become like an addiction, I guess, as yeah. well. And um, I'd rather prefer to enjoy the birds for what they are. And like, so, that of these photographs that you yeah. put out, you know, on the 2010 website there, yeah. that's a black kite that I photographed at a, a meeting in uh, Kyoto in in Japan probably the year previously. And then the Firecrest and the Peregrine are both taken within walking distance of my house in, in Bristol. So, um, you know, as I said earlier, having, having this time to explore what's on our doorstep in more depth recently has been a real eye-opener for me. The Woodchat Shrike, I think, was on the Isles of Scilly when we were on holiday there 
last year as well. And that's um, that photograph of me on the swing as well is um, the Isles of Sully, probably my favourite place on earth. Actually, it's uh, it's uh, very beautiful. You tend to go to, to, to do you tend to go there uh, during migration time. Um, no, or, I or, no, or not. I've uh, never been been there to see the migrant birds. We we, we tend to go there in summer and um, have a couple of weeks there. Couldn't get a place this year because southwest of England is virtually fully booked. Um, yeah. But um, you know, I do enjoy going on these pelagic trips. Right. You okay. see all these uh, seabirds flying right next to the boats as well. That can be great fun. Yeah. I think I saw on one of your sites, I don't know if it was on this site or if it was on your Twitter feed, your personal Twitter feed, uh, that I see some nice pictures of sooty shearwaters and stuff like that. Was that yourself? Yeah, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get sooties, corys, great shearwaters, Wilson's petrels flying around these boats and uh, get some great views of them as well, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, never seen a great shearwater. Uh, well, that's that's a species I've, I've yet to see. Um, Wow, no, it's brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. And yeah, you know, so I just think it's really fascinating to get the, the background behind the, the person at work and uh, really appreciate you sharing, uh, sharing some of that with us there. That's, that's been fabulous. So that's taking us uh, to the close almost. Is there anything else that we should talk about or you want to mention? before I close things off. I always worry at this stage that there was something I was supposed to talk about or something really, really obvious that uh, I haven't mentioned. Uh, how, how do you feel? Uh, no, anything that else we should mention? Um, I think that's been pretty comprehensive, actually. It sort of covered many of the um, main things that have happened during my life uh, with, with bat research. Um, you know, I always look back at 30 years ago and look back at the um, equipment we had yeah. then. Um, I used to carry around this huge instrumentation tape recorder, yachting batteries to power it. Um, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have um, mobile phones. Now we can put um, little radio tags powered with solar panels on flying foxes. We've done this in Mauritius and Madagascar, and we can track them um, on our phones as they move around the area. It's, uh, it's remarkable how the technology has changed, but that's one of the exciting things about working with bats. You've got all this new technology emerging, but as a scientist, I think it's always really important to have hypotheses, ask good questions, sometimes try and design experiments where you can tease out a single factor like the effect of street lighting on bats, for instance. And having that scientific mind is in some ways more important actually than having the technology, but um, it's always been a great thrill to see these technological um, advances and to use them. And, and I suppose, um, again, I'm, I'm a similar sort of, uh, you know, age to yourself, I think. I mean, I remember when I started work, you no, know, we didn't even have 
we didn't have photocopy. We didn't even have a photocopier or a fax machine. Um, if we wanted, we used carbon paper to take copies yeah. of things. You know, we had typing pools. <laughs> we didn't have word. We had proper typewriters. They didn't even have yeah. word processors at that point. And I suppose it's been a pretty exciting, you know, three, three and a half, four decades, um, especially from a bat world perspective, because the advances in the technology that allows us to access the acoustic information has just been, in some respects, it's probably been too fast for for us as humans we've got the technology now but we don't necessarily have all of the understanding about what the technology is telling us perhaps yeah does that does that make sense to you yeah yeah i think so you know you know one of the amazing things about doing research on bats is um as you've mentioned already in some ways they're very mysterious animals they're nocturnal um they rely on a lot on sounds that we can't hear and there are a lot of uh, interesting things wrapped up in their, um, their genomes as well. And now having the ability to um, understand these um, things in, in, in more detail is, has been exciting. And I think you're right. I think the last um, 30 years or so has been an amazing time, actually. And uh, yeah, I think things will continue and the technologies will improve and bats will have a lot more secrets um, revealed to us yeah. through uh, through the use of uh, the scientific method. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Gareth, I think we'll take things to a close there. Um, I've got to say, this has, well, from my perspective, this has been splendid. I've I've learned stuff um, today, and it's been a complete joy uh, talking to you properly i mean we have had occasional uh, conversations in the past and exchanges of uh, emails and stuff but to actually you know sit down and have i don't know we've been talking well over an hour and i've just found it really interesting really fascinating and uh, i really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do this for us here in batability club um, so I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Have you enjoyed yourself? Has it been all right? Yeah, it's been it's been great actually. And um, you know, thanks very much again for um, inviting me. And um, thanks for you know really structuring and um, giving a good framework for what I found to be a very enjoyable experience. We hope you enjoyed this talking bat interview which is an edited, audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to betability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you. Mm-hmm.